Hi, and welcome to Song Divers, an interview podcast about singer-songwriters. We like to go deep in conversation with our favorite musicians in search of honest answers. What are the ingredients of a great song? What makes a songwriter tick? Can a musician make a living these days? Is Jason Isbell overrated? What? My name is Stefan. And this is Ed. On this episode, we have a musical wizard, and to my generation, a guitar-wielding Dumbledore. Hey, Steve Conley here. fortunate to know Steve Connolly for 40-ish years now, and over that time he's been everything from a teacher to a helper to a collaborator to a friend, but before we had ever even met, he was an inspiration. Then as now, you could walk into any bar and find competent musicianship on display, but no local musician ever literally made my jaw drop until I encountered Steve. He showed me that a kid from Largo, Florida needn't waste any time waiting around for stardom. There he was staking his claim as a world-class guitar hero on any random dingy stage he happened to be standing on. Then as now, Steve Connolly lit a spark. And that spark lit the fuse for a whole generation of musicians that would go on to be produced by Steve at Zen Recording Studios, and all fantasized about being able to play even a single line of a Steve Connolly guitar lead. Zen became a safe haven for songwriters of any caliber looking to lay down a record. From his psychedelic high school years, time on tour with Roger McGuinn, to the countless hours he spent bringing to life the musical works of so many others, Steve inspires, he instructs, and he provides a platform for the songwriter to fully realize their compositions. Whether you know him as well as so many artists do, or you're just hearing about Steve for the first time, we are so grateful to be able to bring you our conversation with him. We also need to mention that due to technical difficulties during our session with Steve, we are unable to present his performance of the song Happy Idiot. However, we do have our hands on a rare, unreleased performance of that song by Steve's band The Headlights, recorded live at Catherine Hickman Theater in Gulfport, Florida. We hope you enjoy it. So, Steve, tell us where you're from. Where'd you grow up? New York City. Really? That Island, New York, yeah. I guess I knew that. You were born there, but you, you moved down here when you were pretty young, right? I was seven years old. We moved here in 1960. Tell us about your upbringing, family life, or your parents like. Parents were great. I mean, when I think about it, I had the most perfect upbringing you could imagine. You know what I'm saying? It was just, they were great. They let me do whatever I want, and I was a, I was a good Catholic boy, basically. It's until high school, till rock and roll, you know. But <laughs> we'll get there. Until, until the left-hand path appeared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your dad was a baseball player. My dad was a, uh, he was a pro, he was going to be a pro baseball player. Yeah, he was called up to the, to the Dodgers. 
the season they moved to uh, Los Angeles from Brooklyn. But he hurt his arm in the offseason and was never able to get back to his true form. He, he, he went actually to umpire school and completed umpire school to be an umpire. But with one kid in 1953, he couldn't make enough money to raise one kid from an umpire's pay. That's how bad they were paid. So. Well, it's crazy to think about when you think about what major leaguers make now. And I think I think I, umpires I, do pretty I, I, well I, now. I'm sure umps do very well now. Too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so an athlete, but where did music come in? Were you, either your parents musical? No. There's no one musical in my family that I, can, that I know of uh, anywhere. I know my uh, great-grandfather, Edward... Built stages. <laughs> Built stages on Broadway in the, in the late 1800s. So he facilitated things that were musical. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit, you know. No, but I'm, I'm from a family of steelworking, beer drinking, hockey playing. But was there music in the household? Like, did your parents listen well, to music? yeah. I mean, uh, not much. But what we did listen to I totally like absorbed I think the first album I ever really music I ever really heard was this uh like Bing Crosby sing along with all these classic Tin Pan Alley <laughs> you know songs that's how I grew up listening and and I remember my first thing I was really got me emotionally was the George M. Cohen story I don't know if you're George M. Cohen it was Mick uh was James Cagney played George M. Cohen he was the turn of the century songwriter and it was you know it was the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, you know, over here, over there. It's, it's all that, and I just, I cried when I was six years old watching that movie, and those songs just hit me. So it's probably my first musical experience. That's interesting. I would have guessed Elvis. Well, a few years later, after we moved to Florida, there was a guy right across the street, Bobby Beecham, and from North Carolina, and his dad was a hi-fi nut. Back then, hi-fis were, you know, in. And he had speakers in every closet of the house. <sighs> and and when you, I went to open the closet in, in the hallway, and you ain't nothing but a hound dog came out. And I just was entranced. I, and I sat in that closet and listened to the, it play. And he kept playing it over and over again. I just listened to it all afternoon. Ain't nothing but a hound dog by Elvis. I had no idea Elvis, rock and roll or whatever. But, you know, it same effect it had on a lot of others, or a few others. It was, it was all over, you know. What's Especially so, when the Beatles hit in February. I was going to say, February yeah. of 1964 was when it, you know, when it really ended any, any hope for a future. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, that's true for so many of us from that era. So, I'm assuming guitar was your first instrument? And when did you pick up? Did you take no, lessons? No, no, it wasn't no? my first. Well, yeah, yes and no. But simultaneously, I mean, I, you know, I didn't consider myself playing anything but I had a guitar and I was figuring out how to play it but at that time I played tuba or sousaphone in the school band I played in junior high school band and the high school band it's a kind of a grotesque tuba mm-hmm. it is, it's sort of an amplified version of a, of a tuba so did you pick that up because you joined the high school band like I joined the high school yeah I wanted to play music in a band in the band but my parents couldn't afford to buy an instrument or even rent an instrument I guess and those were provide you know you didn't you didn't have your own sousaphone you bought from home so. so did the band director say we need a sousaphone player? no that's that's uh, all there was you know, <laughs> sorry like, Connolly we're, we're packed unless you want to pick up the sousaphone that's exactly what it was <laughs> so I played so I played sousaphone next to state champion Tim Dehart who <laughs> reminded me of that every day that he was a state champion tuba player did you at least get to play some George M Cohan songs no, no we never no. never did no, no. I said, 
I got to show up Tim Dehart, though, state champion, because he couldn't play this passage from Schubert's Ninth Symphony, and I could. And, it was like, and that's when so it really started. That's when, that's when it hit. You know, it's like, oh, wow. So did you, good. did you, at the sousaphone level, did you have some inkling that you had a predisposition for music? You know, no, I still don't think I have a predisposition for music. <laughs> You're the only it's, person it's that pure, thinks that about you. It's pure will and desire and effort. It's it really, I mean, it's... I'd say 10,000, but in your case, I guess like 40,000 hours. I have very, very little natural musical ability, I think, you know, I just... It's something else. It's some, whatever makes me anything. It's something else. It's not music, really music. You know, I'm not a great technician per se. Even though it's sort, of, I can fool people. I don't think I am. It's it's really it's a lot of, it's adrenaline basically. I think a lot of listeners are probably fear and argue fear and adrenaline. Yeah. <laughs> and you're you're a southpaw. You're left-handed. I'm left-handed, you, and I play right-handed. But you play right-handed. I don't know why. You know, I'm sort of clueless about a lot of things and. You know, I loved the Beatles, and but I didn't know they made left-handed guitars. Even though Paul McCartney played a left-handed bass, I never never occurred to me that I should get a left-handed instrument. And just so, I was, did you ask your parents like, "Hey, I want a guitar"? Did oh, they, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I, I wanted a guitar, and they actually, I remember that day they got me one. They said they called. I was at my friend Butch's house. He was the the first band I had was my friend Butch McCook, and we were you know, sitting around playing this boy and whatever and. But anyway, I, I didn't have a guitar yet. He had a little acoustic. And so I, uh, my parents called me up at his house and said, Steve, come home. we got an old friend from, from New York here to see you. I go, what? Yeah. So I went home, and there was a, uh, see, a little K, 5-watt amp, and a Kingston guitar. You could pick up Kingston guitar that they got from Moss Brothers on a credit card. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, so, and that was my first guitar. It was a really kind of a cool guitar. I, and ha- I how I old still are you? had it. I was 11. Okay. I was 11 years old. And then you were just figuring out how to play it? Like, how did you learn? Did you have some, because you had played the sousaphone, you had some knowledge of musical theory or? You know, it's like, it's, no, I, it really wasn't. It, it's, I learned a few little, I guess a lot of guys started, you learn riffs. Secret Agent Man. Yeah, they're all the, the two, the, the B and the E string riffs. Mm-hmm. So, and that's you know that was like the, one of the first things I could do right there, a little black egg and satisfaction. But from from ear. One day I was in Woolworth's department store, and they had a little music section there with their cheapy guitars, you know, little mm-hmm. teeny kiosk. And I was just looking at him. This guy was there, and he picked up a guitar and he played. I went, oh man, show me that, show me that, show me that. And it was, it was Danny Ray, the bass player in the Split Ends. Remember Danny Eliasson, his name was. was remember, there was a group called the Split Ends. This is 1967. This is local group. 66, not, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And they, they were one of the first local rock and roll bands. There was a great Florida rock and roll scene here in the, in the mid-60s, late, you know, early to mid-late 60s. So were you going to shows, like at 11? Or when did you start no, going to see going, shows? I started uh, the teen clubs. There was a place called Clearwater called the Bonton Teen Club. And the Hollow Blue that was on Port uh, Harrison. And would the Split Ends play those clubs? Split ends, the Tropics. Split Ends, the Tropics. Well, the, the Ronnie Elliott ilk. His his. We're we're the. I'm like the second generation I see of rock and roll. You know, what I mean, the first generation was Ronnie and those guys who mm-hmm. came up at, from the late '50s, early '60s. You know, that kind of stuff. And you know, we were the next wave of of you know, five years behind kind of. So who uh, were you going to see? Whoever shipped, you know, was there on Friday or Saturday night. Mm-hmm. So I had the strawberry alarm clock one night, 
and, incense uh, and peppermints. Incense and peppermints with Ed King on guitar, who was a guitarist from who wrote "Sweet Home Alabama." He was the guitarist, and, and there we go. See the Tropics, you know, one of the top bands, uh, the Puddin' Basting Group. Uh, and were you were you buying records at this time too, or getting records? Like, how were you no, getting your musical I, consumption? I never, you know, I never bought records really. I've never even had a stereo or played music that much. I went to a little period in the mid '70s, you know, when when new wave hit, and I was living behind a record store that I got into an album phase for a few years. But mm-hmm. other than that, I've never really, you know, bought records. Were you picking stuff up from Butch and other people that you knew, like uh, yeah, getting together and like I said, just like like Danny Ray showing me that it's like. You give me a little bit to work on, and I'll expand. Expand, you know what I'm saying? And it's pretty much it's all been from that, from having a little, you know, uh, you know. Well, I don't know if I should go into this, but just the way I learned to play guitar, you know, was you should go into this. Well, it was back in high school. We used to go to this place up in Brooksville. And We're going to get into psychedelics now, aren't we? Every Friday night, we would take LSD and drive in Volkswagen vans up to this forest. Desert, this whole in that order, scene. you and take the LSD then drive. Actually, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so we'd be it would be hitting right as you were pulling into <laughs> Hexham Heights Road, and, ten thousand hours. Yep. And yep. And, and anyway, so I'd, I'd be you know hopeless little sixteen year old out of his mind, and I had a guitar and I'd uh-huh. pick it up and I. I discovered I could do a melody on one string and play a drone. And I would do that for hours while I was tripping. And that's, that's how I learned to play guitar. Right? I mean, I'm a, I wouldn't recommend it, but Well, it seems it to worked. have worked. Yeah. It worked. <laughs> so, well, that kind of reminds me, too, of like much, much later. Um, you told me once how you taught yourself to play pedal steel guitar. Wasn't that also like medically uh, induced? Well, <laughs> I guess it was. Oh, damn, I didn't think. Uh, yeah, we were in, uh, that was like the late, like 79, we went, uh, we were, we'd go up to Colorado and do a little summer tour, and we were staying at this, this, this hippie commune in, in, uh, outside of Boulder, in Loveland, actually, in Loveland, Colorado, and this guy was making bathtub crystal meth, and everybody was doing some one night, and, and I, I did some, but thinking it was, you know, they said it was coke, whatever, but it was crystal meth, and I stayed up for three days, and I'd just gotten this pedal steel, I had a little floppy like vinyl, one of those little records you get, you know, in, in, in magazines, okay. little floppy vinyl things that was an instructional thing. And I played that. I learned uh, Great Speckled Bird, I think, or something. <laughs> and I just, I just poured myself into that instrument. Couldn't sleep, so might as well, you know, be constructive. And, <laughs> Agreed. And yeah, I agree. I, that's pretty much everything I learned about pedal steel was those three days of, of intense you know, <laughs> so that's, that's how it's done, kids. That's like the Hunter Thompson quote. I, you know, I wouldn't recommend, but it worked for me. But yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, I remember even Roger McGuinn when we were on tour with him. One night was was going on and on about how they could never have ever played or been a real band if it wasn't for speed, because none of them could play. They got a record deal before they knew how to play their instruments, basically. Well, weren't the were the Wrecking Crew doing a lot of the? Uh, yeah, the mostly the Wrecking Crew doing right. this Tambourine Man and and. Turn, 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 I believe the first two singles were... They, only, they let Roger play on it because he had a union card from playing in New York Sessions. So he had played Sessions, so he was okay. They, back, back then, you know, if you couldn't play, you, you weren't playing. You, so 
the band never, you know, till later on they started getting better. But they would just do speed, stay up all weekend, practice. I think the takeaway here is that hard work pays off. They put hard in a lot work, of hours yeah, and exactly, practice. Yeah, yeah, it's just, How you develop your own facility to practice, I think, is, you know. It's just chemical. All life is chemical. It's just, you know, it's just a different type of chemical. And it does a certain thing that makes you do a certain thing. And if you use it correctly... This is actually going into the story where Steve took speed and actually finished med school in a week. (laughs) So you're uh, changing your chemicals and you're learning guitar. When did you, like, when did your first band start? When did you have a desire to have, let's call it an artistic voice? Or or was that the desire? Well, I mean, the band came before even knowing how to play. You know what I'm saying? We started a band before we could really do anything because... That's why we did it. We wanted to be in a band like the Beatles, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we would set up on the on like on Ronnie's Ronnie's back porch, right? And we'd play and all the kids in the neighborhood would filter filter the backyard and they'd be dancing all of a sudden. And so it was like that's how it started. We would play, you know, garages and back porches. Neighborhood kids would come. So when did you really start to develop and, and like get your first band where you're playing out, you're starting to gig? What was that? What was that transition like? And and I think even more importantly, who was once you started doing that? And were you doing any original stuff? And if so, who was writing? Back in high school, I was you know, about eleventh grade. I was about sixteen, fifteen, sixteen. We started jamming, and I just started writing songs. And first song I wrote was thirteen minutes long, and it was this space science fiction opus called Uranian Fathers. The Iranian fathers are watching us on screens of silver. The Iranian fathers are watching us from glasses of gold, gazing at the surreal patterns of our lives. Their spaced, wide open minds are free from forces that keep us tied. That was the first little stanza I wrote. At 16? <laughs> I guess, yeah. Wow. And so we, you know, we started, we just started doing originals. And we were in a you know original band. I, I was at first I refused to play covers. You know that was beneath. That just wasn't. You know, I mean, I learned to play back earlier. We had sockot bands like in junior high school, eighth, ninth grade, and I had a good friend named Jay Bocook. Uh, one day he hands me his less his other Les Paul. He had two gold top Les Pauls in 1967. You always need a back. 69 actually, it's 69. And he handed me his other gold top and said, "You're not because at that time I played bass." I said, there's this new band out called the Almond Brothers, and they're incredible. And we're going to play their first album, and I'm, I'm going to teach you how to play all Dickie Betts guitar parts. So I said, okay, great. So he gave me his gold top and taught me all Dickie, you know, all the you know, double leads on the first, that first Almond Brothers album. You know that? So, and, I guess it took. Yeah, and that's out, so that was when I started playing guitar. It's so funny, too, because the first thing I ever learned on guitar was that stuff, and I learned the solo of the badge, the Cream song. Yeah. And I still play those two, those two guys, those, those things in every song, solo I ever take. You know what I mean? It's the same, same thing, just is rearranged. That, is that because they were some of the first things you learned, or is it because yeah, it, they, it, cause you liked them so much also? Well, that's probably why I learned them, because I liked them so much, but that's, you know... That was it. That was the. There was the essence. You know what I mean. The essence of what I heard was in those those things. So that's that's my orientation, I guess, to approaching. 
But then, of course, then when the Grateful Dead happened, you know, when they entered the picture, it sort of expanded, you know, from that. No comment. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say expanded in a, in a positive direction. Necessarily. <laughs> yeah. I'm laughing because I, I had a conversation with Laura, my wife, before this, and I'm like, I hope this topic of the Grateful Dead doesn't come up. Mm-hmm. So it might be our first argument, like, in, in, in public. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I mean, uh, nothing. Uh, I, I don't need to defend the Grateful Dead. They, they, they were awful. I mean, they were, they were terrible. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were God's band. They were beautiful at the same time. And, you know, they, they proved it, I think. So. They have staying power, that's for sure. I think I must be wrong because so many people revere them. So. It's, more than, it's more than, you know, the music. Basically, with it, with that, band. I mean, it, it is, and it, and it sort of isn't. It's something there's something else. I love plenty of terrible music. So, well, to your point, you know, I think the staying power of a song is really important, and I think that that always rings true. But there is something more to it usually for people if if they're going to have or amass the following. That well, see, that's the Grateful it. Dead with, does right within yeah within a band like the Grateful Dead, you have these guys just you know noodling. 50-minute jams of psychedelic noise and stuff. But eventually, something happened there, and then their lyricist, Robert Hunter, started writing these Americana little nuggets, and, and, and they built up, built up an incredible body of work, I think. Of, I think Robert Hunter is one of the best poet-songwriters of the 20th century. I mean, it, you listen to that stuff, and it, it, it will just get better as time goes by. And it's, it's proven that now. I mean, you Would know. you say he's kind of an influence? Because now that I think of it, like you're... He's probably, he must be, even though he, not an overt, because they didn't ever, you know... We actually would play some Robert Hunter songs. From his, he had a first album called Tales of the Great Rum Runners. It sounds like a Jimmy but Buffett was, B-side. <laughs> you know, so, you know so when I first started music, it, it was all, it was like, I wanted to be a good musician. I wanted, and so I wrote, I wrote this progressive stuff, you know, 13-minute songs and stuff with Time signatures, you know, seven, seven eight, and you know, ele- things in elevens. Just, just because that was progressive, it was forward. And I don't know what happened, but at some point, I guess I heard Bob Dylan, the band, that kind of stuff, and it, it, I heard this feeling in it, and this, in the simplicity of the organicness. You know what I'm saying? There's something about it just drew me to that, and I sort of abandoned wanting to be a musico, you know, and and thought more in this sort of traditional folk, you know, sort of lineage of a songwriter songs and playing within these simpler structures in a way. And that's, you know, and as I'm saying this, I'm just discovering this myself. You know what I'm saying? I'm just making this up because it's, I'm realizing it as I, as I talk about it. Uh, my friend Ron Long, who lived right behind me, and he was my bass player. He was my best friend at the time. And we would get together and just you know, hang out and stuff. And he got American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. And he was, he was like pushing him on me, saying, "Man, this is," and I, you know, I couldn't care less. It, finally, it, I started sort of getting it. And one night we were over at his house. His parents are away, you know, and, and we're just partying on a, on a Friday night. And I do some LSD. I go in his parents' room, and they have an eight-track cartridge in the head of their bed. They had a little headboard on their bed, an eight-track cartridge player. And live dead, sitting there on his dad's bed stand. So I popped it in, put the headphones on, and emerged about eight hours later. <laughs> and I, that's kind of, it was kind of, that was kind of the, you know, that night of doing that. And that's when I got, the, you say, they got the Grateful Dead. You know, they sound like, like kind of goofy, ropey, out of tune, you know, stuff until you get it. it kind of, and 
I got it that night after hearing I, that. I think I may have just figured out what's missing for me and in the Grateful Dead experience. The, the lack of psychedelics in my life. Yeah, you can't. I mean, as far as that part of the Grateful Dead, it's, you know, that musical part of the Grateful Dead. Not their song songs, per se, but mm-hmm. that part is definitely, I mean, it came out of, so they learned to play, you know, tr- chirping their brains out. And, and, you know, and that was the best LSD that was ever around. You know, it just got weaker over the years. I don't know if it, people know that, but it was strong, man, in, in the 60s. It was. So you and Ron uh, started Yggdrasil together? And who else was in that? Yeah, band? and Butch, Butch, Butch McCook, McCook uh, and Bob Leitner. Space, space, space. The drummer was. And it's funny because we were sort of like, we sort of fit the profile of of each Grateful Dead member. You know, Ron was sort of like a Phil Lesh. You know, Bill was sort. Of, I mean, Butch was sort of like a Bobby Weir. That what we way we play. You know, I mean, it was weird. We had we had a ready-made caricature of the Grateful Dead. In our in our you know our little scene, we had a pig pen. You know, the guy who drove the van and played the organ and, and blue harp. You know, it was and space was you know Bob Lightner was was Kurtzman all the way. So it was we were a natural, you know, instant Grateful Dead band. And the, the first band was was Jack Drills and we played probably. Well, that first band was mostly just a jam band doing originals, and then we and then we you know morphed into a Grateful Dead band. But we were a Grateful Dead tribute band here in Tampa Bay in 1973 before anybody had any idea who they were. So how did the evolution into the headlights um, start? And I was in a band called Just Another Rainbow. It was a three-piece, like, power bluegrass trio. We had a champion fiddle player, Paul Kelly, and we would do, like, rave-up versions of Grateful Dead, New Riders of the Purple Stage, you know, the typical early folk country rock stuff. So we started out acoustic, and we had we added a bass play, We added space back in the band on drums. My friend Scott Dempster on bass, and we became a five-piece band called Just Another Rainbow, playing, you know, the local Tri-City circuit: Largo, Clearwater, Tampa, St. Pete, and that eventually led to what was the Headlights. Well, so so how did that happen? Because what the I guess most of the band you mentioned, but... So when did Steve Robinson show up? How did he get involved with you guys? Well, first Charlotte came back into the fold, right? Well, we were... That was when we were sort of... We were sort of like, you know... I met Charlotte in, in high school. I mean, in, in college. We hooked up and we were playing. And we were rainbow all through the, the mid-70s. And right about 79, 80, we were breaking up. And we're going our separate ways. And uh, this kid comes up to me at a club we were playing one night. And he just arrived from England, and he goes, "Hey, mate, I'm looking for looking for any musicians to play with." And, 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 <laughs> but uh, and you know, we got together, and, and she left. He came in, and we became the Headlights. That was like 1980-81. So the Headlights start up. Are you and Steve writing together? Are you both bringing songs to the band? We're both bringing songs. Yeah, I've never I've never co-wrote. I've maybe co-written one or two songs. So so you guys are obviously eventually go on to do what many of us know which is you end up with roger mcguinn and you're on tour so what was that progression like and what else was going on in music then like and tell us too in your description what type of music were you guys doing and what what else was going on in the world at the time well that was i mean that a lot happened in you know what i mean in that period of time from 1979 80 to 1991 say in that chunk of the 80s or uh, that's when we morphed into the headlights and became a, a kind of certain kind of band with a certain kind of sound and and things started happening for us we got 
you know, we, we did a local so a song on a local album, and some guy in Nashville heard it and actually searched for us and found us here, you know, found us in Orlando, actually, at a, at a record store. Somebody happened to know who we were, and this guy was looking for us. He didn't know how to get in touch with us. And, and he came in, found us, and he was actually the guy who discovered Steve Earle, and a guy named Steve Roberts. And he found us, and he took us to Nashville, and we got a record deal, and that was 1988, 88, yeah. But before that, in 1986, we won a national band contest you know, with the song that was, he, found, he heard on that record, actually. What song was it? A Judgment Day, it was oh, okay. called. okay, yeah. And that's, you know. So you get signed, you're with a label in Nashville. Airborne, what, what Airborne Records, next? yeah, and uh, we make an album, <laughs> and it never comes out, the, the label, goes bankrupt before, you know, we had 300 cassettes shipped to us as an advance, and that was it. And we never got CDs and never got vinyl. But, it was, so we, but we finished an album. It was called Test the Spirit in 1988 in Nashville on Airborne Records. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm not upset that it never came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so that would sound like kind of a, like... A problem. So, how, what what did you guys do when that happened? Were you guys kind of demoralized, or just yeah. kind of like this is what we're going to do anyway? So we'll just get back at it. Yeah, we, we you know because it's like I don't know the whole thing was like that's what sort of you know we'll get to this I guess later. But I eventually started a recording studio in the nineties, and but that experience is what sort of made me think that this is stupid. You know, we spent eighty grand on on a record just because they had it to spend. You know, they'd go out and have French dinners every night and drink a couple bottles of wine, and nothing after 6 o'clock was ever kept, you know, recorded, <laughs> other than my parts, because I didn't partake in their debauchery. But, uh -huh. So, I mean, I, but I saw that, you know, these guys just milked the budget for 80 grand to make a record, and I could have made this record for $2,000. Know. So that's I sort of became my focus, and, and you know, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you felt a calling. Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, I, I was always the guy who liked to record, or the, always the guy who showed the sound man how to run the soundboard. And I so. can remember hearing your, you had a, a four track, Porta studio. Yeah. And hearing you would do demos for, for the headlight songs. Right. Home demos, yep. four tracks, and they sounded better than stuff that was coming out of that people were going into the studio. There's still and, some of my favorite recordings, yeah. even though they're kind of, kind of quaint and you know, but they're. They're cool because they they came from that moment of creating. You know, it's pretty much right when I'd write a song, I'd record it, and it was fresh. And there was there's something about you know I have this theory that the first time you do something is the best time you'll ever do it. So when you do something right, it's a, it's the only you know it'll never be better than that. When you're soloing and you come up with something, you try to repeat that. You can you can repeat it, but. No, you can't really repeat it. It's there's something missing. So you guys do the like. How do you then progress to? Because I I remember, you know, my dad showing me and and he loves to rewatch it. I I do too. You guys showing up on the Tonight Show, right? Yep. So how how do you go from the label folding to to that? Yeah, that's well. That label folds. Nineteen eighty eight. We're a local band again, just playing. You know, Clancy's and Club Detroit and ACL Club. Doing the normal, the normal Thursday. You know, back then it was Thursday, Friday, and Saturday bands played. They don't do that anymore. I mean, but that was, the, I mean, for 20 years, that's what everybody did. You played three nights a week at a, at a club. You'd set up, you'd keep, you know, it's all one-nighters, and everybody's in 15 bands now. But My bass player, Scott, goes to a Bob Dylan show 
uh, at Tampa Theater, I believe, and uh, runs into Roger McGuinn. But he gets he he warms his way backstage because he, he's trying to be always trying to be a rock star, and he meets Roger backstage and says, "Hey man, why don't you produce a song for us?" And Roger goes, "Okay." <laughs> So that's how it kind of started. We met Roger, and he came in, and we went to my friend's studio in Tampa, Hitmakers Records, and we did a song. That, and we did actually a four-song EP that Roger McGuinn produced. Was this Earthbound? And this is Earthbound. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that, that was our first, that was 1989, I believe. And he, you know, came in his Volkswagen camper van every day, drove to Tampa, and, and hung out, you know, and graciously produced our... EP for us. And did we get along with Roger? Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was, it was an eye-opening experience. It was, you know. Roger, well, he had been some of a, somewhat of a hero to you, like a he was my, formative... He was, when, I was a, when I was 12 years old, he was my, my childhood hero. I, I, you know, Birds were my favorite band, even over the Beatles at that moment, you know. And I used to tell people he was my cousin when I was old, 12. <laughs> In fact, this guy I know went, saw him in Switzerland and went up to him and said, Hey, man, I know Steve Connolly. You're going, what, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> But then I end up being his, you know, his, his backup band, his band leader for, for 10 years. You know, so nice. so he, what, he gets picked up to go back out on, he's going to go back out on tour. And he says, hey, why don't you guys In 1991, he did an album called Back From Rio on Arista. And it was, it was, it was going to be like a comeback push, you know, to get him back into the uh, and. He had a. He saw us play. He realized he had a. He had a ready-made birds band in his backyard because he was living on Indian Rocks Beach at the time. Well, you mentioned Earth, Earthbound, the EP that he produced that you did at Hitmakers. So, like, wasn't there a shot at that title song, Earthbound, being on his solo record? Well, he, you know, from producing, he loved the song and he wanted to do it on the album. And I was like, oh, great! That's just, just that's my, my lucky day, you know. And so he goes, and then he also he's calls back and says, yeah, Arista re- rejected. They, they don't want me. They, they want me to do this song from Clive Davis's little, uh, new songwriter. He's hot on instead. And he goes, don't feel bad, though. Everybody gets rejected on, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's not you. It's me. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, but he wanted, and, and I said, Roger, you're the Hall of Fame rock star. You can do whatever the hell you want, right? And, well, I don't want to take any chances <laughs> so, so you guys were backing him. Yeah, well, we we did a in '91. We did a, a national tour from April through June. Took a little break. Went to England. Did a couple shows. Opened for ZZ, ZZ Top in Stockholm and uh, played a pop festival in Finland with the band. And then we came back home and did another extended tour for like two months. That wasn't supposed to be a band tour, but the first one went so well. You know, they were promoting the record, so. You know, the first one had tour support, though. The second one didn't. It was already just a book tour. He, he would go out solo, right? This just his guitar and mm-hmm. 12 songs on his, on his guitar written, and that was it. And that was that going to be that tour, an airplane. So the routing was terrible. You know, we, had, we were driving the bus from Madison to L.A. to, to Austin mm-hmm. to, you know, to Idaho. <laughs> it was crazy. But, but it was great. I mean, we, we toured probably six months in 1991. So, what's going on in your like personal life at this time? Because obviously, I know your kids. You know, I'm growing up around them and stuff. So, are you, like, are you, are you, what's going? Like, are you your dad at that point, or I'm a not dad. Yet? I'm a dad. I've got a uh, eight year old daughter and a three year old son. 
and you're managing that from the road. Well, I guess you're, you weren't gone for like years at a time, you know, you're months at a time, but yeah, we were only gone. That was, only, you know, I mean, we didn't, that was only a, a jaunt, you know, it was like from April through September mm-hmm. or through August of that year, we were really gone. You know? mm-hmm. How, so when, when it will, Hey, do you still have a, a relationship with Roger McGuinn? Like do you, you guys ever still connect or catch up? No, I haven't. Um, I, I lost his address, actually. I don't. Uh, I haven't talked to him in a few years. But a few years ago, I was very sick. I almost died. I had liver disease. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had hepatitis C for 40 years and never knew it. And eventually it got me. And, but when I was recovering, I got a check in the mail one day for $1,000. For and it's from Roger McGuinn. I lost the envelope with the return address before I could send him a thank you. So I'm saying, thank you, Roger. Uh, thank, so thank you now. Yeah, late. Roger, if you're listening, thank you for doing that. Um, well, you know, and you mentioned that time, too. Many people listening to this will know, like, you know, there's a large, we did a large Steve Connolly concert, and you're certainly not one to want attention, but a super special night and such a cool thing. And so many different musicians and stuff that came out for that. It was so awesome because... And it's a good segue because you've touched so many people from either inspiring them musically or I was, you, you've I was recorded. Blown, I, I was overwhelmed. I was blown away by it because, I mean, I didn't, you know, it, this guy starts to go fund me and all of a sudden I've got 10 grand in my bank account a week later. But that's because, and, you know, a lot of the people have talked about it in different ways. But one of the things that you did, you certainly did it for, for me and my bands as we started and still do. Like, you find a way to make the record happen. You know, and it's you're fully invested, you care, you want to see the product turn out. But, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, I could have made that record for two grand. Well, sometimes and, and a lot of times musicians hardly have the two grand. And one thing you've been able to do and sustain over the time you've been recording is produce great work and make it work affordably. You figure it out for the bands. Great you know? work, cheap. Yeah, but I mean, but but y- no, it yeah. shows because you touch so many people doing that. And it's not just that you put a record out like you're... Th- all the things that you've figured out and that you've taught yourself over the years, we get. Like, we, you impart that on us, you know? So, on behalf of all of them that aren't sitting here that were doing those episodes, thank you. I love, I mean, that's, that's sort of why I like doing I mean, I, lo- I love being the guy. I love mentoring. I love, you know, showing, you know, sharing, whatever. I, if, if you're interested, I'll, I'll go on and, you know what I'm saying? I'll go, go forever if you're interested, you know? So, you get transition out of the headlights. Or, or do you? Is the headlights kind of sort of just an evergreen thing that you guys kind of can pick back up and, and put away? Like, is there, is there a falling out? Like, is there a breakup? I, I think nice it's a, dramatic I think breakup? It's, I think it's officially, finally, probably over right now. <laughs> as of today. As of this moment. You just... <laughs> I just ended it. <laughs> but no, Steve just moved to, is moving to North Carolina or moves or whatever. And so... Indefinite hiatus. There's not much really reason to do it. You know, who said? Well, we probably will end up. You know, if we live long enough, we'll probably end up doing another show somewhere. Why? Well, certainly, hope I, so. I'll never say never. But and yeah. I've got no, no, nothing against it. But just doesn't look like it's gonna gonna happen. You know? But so you you eventually do transition into you know you've been the producer, sole producer at Zen Recording. Yeah, well, that, I mean that's a, you, we're talking. Okay, we're back to the early '90s after yeah. the Roger McGuinn tour. And then the headlights, you know, we come back from that, you know, playing the Tonight Show, everyone thinks we're big stars, but said, no, we're just a backing band, you know, and just because we're on the Tonight Show, big deal, they got janitors there too, you know. <laughs> They're not generally on the camera though. So anyway, so, you know, it, I, I was like happy to come back and just play bars. I, you know, I was, I've never really cared about making it or being 
successful even you know it, it, i like it you know, it's great but i it's never been you know I mean, it's not a motivating force with me it, what was the motivating force? I mean, the craft itself yeah i'm just it's a spiritual endeavor it's just it's i'd be doing this if i wasn't you know if it wasn't my job yeah no I, but that's true of a lot of people that like this is what i'm gonna do so those are generally the people that have the most call it success call it the most depth in what they're doing it's because that's what they're going to do regardless you know and they yeah. go they go all in because they they can't not go all in right um but what about like validation of your work is that something that matters to you and is it like is it catharsis are you trying to convey a message and how people respond is that something that is gratifying or have an effect on you oh definitely i mean you know validation is is everything really it's just the whole kind of the whole reason you're doing it whether you admit it or not but that's it's you're looking to be to be noticed and accepted and you know and loved that's kind of you know it's a quest for that it's it's a spiritual endeavor it's finding your place in the universe and you know you know i'm here i'm awake what the hell do i do you know it's it is very existential do you find that mostly do you think in the in the moment of performance you know, I do now. It's funny. I really I enjoy performing now way more than I ever did. In fact, I didn't really, I didn't say dislike it, but I wasn't, I didn't like playing. I hated playing bars the whole time we did that, you know. I hated waiting around to go to work at 9 o'clock at night, and I never liked that. I mean, once we start playing, it was great, you know, and all. but there was something, I wasn't, I don't know. That's why I stopped, you know, and started a recording studio in the mid-90s, and I didn't play for almost 15, 20 years. I would just play, you know, off and on here and there once in a great while or in the studio when I had to. But I just totally left live, live playing, slowly filtered back into it over uh, 2010 and kind of slowly coming, you know, started playing with Ronnie Elliott and well, you know, his it's shows. Kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting to me, too, because when you had your liver transplant and I came to the hospital, one of the first things you told me was, I feel like I just want to play it as often as possible. I really? want to have as, yeah, really? you oh, said that you said I want to have as many See, I, don't, I don't remember saying that but yeah. that's exactly what what it was mm-hmm. you know, a, I'm sort of like you know it's it, this is this is all free time right you know what I mean I shouldn't I shouldn't be here so I've got cheated death and I've, you know I'm invincible so that's a, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what that means <laughs> but I can I know no, that's doctor. that's that's the delusion yes. <laughs> and now a quick ditty about one of the companies supporting this podcast Song Divers is proudly recorded in St. Petersburg, Florida. One of the reasons we love this area is due to how beautiful many of the homes and businesses are here. Well, many of those picturesque facades are due to the lush and tasteful work of Ryan's Green Design, one of the best landscaping and horticultural companies in the Southeast U.S. Their work can be seen from South Florida to South Carolina and on their social media channels. Whether it's updating your garden or a commercial retail center, getting a hold of Ryan's Green Design should be your first step. We can't wait to work with them on our next project, which we hope will be a new studio in our hometown. To see their work and get started on your next green space project, visit songdivers.com green for a free quote. And now, back to the interview. So do you remember, like, what were the first couple of projects? So like, you make this transition, now you're a producer. What are the first couple of projects? I think I was one of the first projects you did at the... Judge's yeah, house, like the I original guess, Zen. So. Was yeah, it, was, like... it was, you know, well, it started with my friends. Like, uh, this couple came to me, like, this is after, right after the band had ended, and I was, I was delivering hoagies, you know, and, and 
I wasn't doing anything. Uh, I got a call from this guy who had a studio down the road and said, hey, I've got this, these people. They're looking for somebody to help them with their music. This guy writes lyrics and, she, and his wife wants to sing, and they, they need somebody to write music to the lyrics and produce songs for them. And, and so, well, and I, so I went over to the house, and he gave me some these country lyrics that he'd written, and I wrote music to them, and they really liked it, and then we, you know, Started trying to cheat. That was it. Started this process where they realized they weren't really musicians or singers or performers or ready for this. And you know, we bought a home studio and everything in the process of, of trying to do this. And after they sort of just said, "Yeah, we're just gonna. We, we got a lot to learn, I guess." And but Steve, we got the studio here. Can you do anything with it? And so I started calling my friends up, and they would come by and record. I think it was charging fifteen dollars an hour. Fifteen dollars an hour. And so I started doing projects out of their basement, basically, uh, was, and that was called Zen Recording. She named it, Mia named it Zen Recording. It was Steve Rushing and Mia Rushing, two wonderful, lovely people, still my best friends. And they, they started uh, basically Zen Recording. Well, thank you to both of them, too, because on behalf of so many musicians who have spent a lot of hours there uh, recording, thank you to them, too, because it's definitely a special place for a lot of us that have laid a lot of cool stuff down there. Yeah, and it's still it's still it's still generating. You know, I'm just amazed. It just you know, no one needs to record. You know, who needs to record? You need your haircut. You need you know, you need your clothes wash. You, you need to eat. You don't need to record. It's so why do you know? But, and I've never advertised or done anything. To, it just comes. It just keeps coming. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes too much keeps coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think you know, as we think about uh, what I would call a pretty prolific you know, producing career. Um, what are some of the acts you're working with right now? Uh, or some of the most recent acts, like what are some of the current projects you guys are working on? If you can talk about them. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. I'm recording a, uh, a really good Scott rock steady band called the new rulers. And they came in and did 18 songs in a weekend. And we've been working on them and finishing them off. They're going to release two albums, 10 songs and 10 songs. And, and that's an, one. I'm working on about six projects. Uh, Americana songwriter named John Carmack, who's an excellent songwriter, hanging in, the, you know, got, getting a lot of buzz in Nashville, and all. And so I've been doing finishing his record off with my old friend Colleen Beckman, Anna O. She lives up in Minnesota. She's been coming down, laying tracks, and leaving me with a bunch of stuff to work on. Mm-hmm. And I've been mixing those and finishing them off. I'm, you know. If I start adding it up, man, it's crazy. It's so you're you're pretty well swamped with projects most of the time. Yeah, there's yeah, some, I, there's some up and down, but you've got so much production and engineering work that, you know, it's kind of hard to find time to do your own your own material. Yeah, I just started recording my second. I mean, I've been in a studio for 25 years, and I've recorded one one album. You know, and that was in 2000, 2009 or 10. Yeah, yeah. and so, and I'm finally starting on my second my second album. With, uh, and again with Vance Borland, Vance, uh, Vance Borland, uh, producing my, my my excellent producer. He's like, he comes in and says, "Okay, we're you're not going to make your own record. I'm going to make your record." Yeah, yeah. So uh, how's that going? Like, uh, what are what are the sessions like for that? It's, it's going pretty good. We're just kind of slowly starting now. I've been recording Beatles covers. Like, why the hell am I recording Beatles covers? But <laughs> just because it sounds, Vance, we should do this song. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So we recorded She's Leaving Home, and we recorded uh, For No One, kind of a faster, 
up version of, uh, for no one. Mm -hmm. And just, th that's just the way to get started. You know what I'm saying? It's slowly more fun. I've re recorded a couple originals and, you know, I don't really have a focus right now. I, at, when I started my first one, I had a lot of songs like built up, you know what I mean, that I hadn't recorded yet. Well, I was going to ask about that because I and think that's an important I haven't thing too. Be, I haven't been really been writing since then. So I, I, I'm kind of mining the, the, you know, the dregs of the past and stuff there's like, you know, showing up, it's like, wow, that's, I didn't hear that at the time, but that's actually pretty cool, you know. Well, so, that's a so, great part so of it. So it's not, it's not like a, you know, a, a desperation thing. I actually like what I'm finding, you know, it wasn't ready. It's, you know, it sounds right now. It didn't, I didn't get it back then. So. Mm -hmm. It, what kind of writer are you? And, I, and I'll ask that in a couple more specific structured ways. So we, we've been asking people, are you a title first, a music first, or a lyrics first writer? Uh, a lot of it is title first. Interesting. Yeah. That's, I would, I get, I that would, is the winning, that's, that is the, the thing that's driving right now. That's in the lead. Really? Oh, yeah. Among yeah, our guests, just, at least. It's just because that, you know, title which snapshot it's a picture right there you, you know so it's there's somewhere you like a prompt you, right you need a you need a springboard you need something to launch you know what i mean i do at least mm -hmm. is once i can get started you know i'll procrastinate forever once i start something then i'm going to finish it and but it may take forever to get started mm -hmm. so. but that's you know and then songwriting's the same way and it's right when my my daughter was born in 1983 and for the first time in my life i was getting up at Eight in the morning, a pot of coffee, and watching a kid all day. I, I was, you know, my wife worked during the day, and I played at night. But mm -hmm. during the day, I watched my daughter, and I would be awake at 10, 10 a.m., you know, with a pot of coffee in me, and she'd go down for a nap or playtime. And, what the hell? and I, would, I would pick up a guitar, smoke half a joint, turn on CNN. I had two TVs, the PTL Club and CNN, or just let TV run. And just let it... And it just and absorb it? One day, I did that, wrote a song. I wrote a, a chorus, a hook, and I, I, I said, hey, that's pretty cool. I said, finish it. So then next week, I wrote two. It started within a few months. I was writing a song almost every day, it seemed like, you know, a few a week. And then I was making myself finish them, you know, because usually you'll write a song, you'll get started, but second verse, you know, and the bridge, they'll hang out forever. And that's the hardest thing, to, you know, I'm sure you know that. The second verse is the hardest thing, for me at least, to, to finish. Or, you know, you get the chorus, you get a verse, you know, but another verse or a bridge, that those are the, you know, that's what keeps songs in limbo forever. But, but I made myself start, you know, a kind of a discipline thing where I started doing it all the time. And, and between 1983 and 1989, I probably wrote 100 songs. Oh, wow. And, and you know, I don't know how good they are, but they all seem to, you know, hold up in some way. They all have, they all have something, you know. So it's interesting because I was, we were, Stefan and I were talking about, uh, like, take, for instance, the song It Takes All Kinds, which there's a reference to Mark David Chapman in there. So is some of that's that the news is on while you're, yeah. you have the guitar, yeah. some of that's seeping into your song, yeah. writing your lyrics? Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what it would, you know. It's funny, too, because I, I, I I, I knew it at the time, but I wasn't thinking of it. But I remember reading about when Roger McGuinn did his uh, Jolly Rogers solo album. And there was a Broadway playwright, and a guy named Jacques Levy, who used to work with Bob Dylan and, and, he would, and worked with Roger. And he would write lyrics. And they would, they would sit in a room and turn, they had seven TVs. They would turn six or seven TVs on. And that's how they would write. You know, and I, I mean, you know it's funny, but that, they did, did that too. So it's,
of the music out there, what would you say? Take away what you're listening to now. Like, who would you consider your favorite artists? I mean, we've talked about some of them, but like, you know, if you're going to rattle off a top five, top ten, like, I don't, who? I don't know if I can do that. You know, no? T Bone Burnett. He's a good He's one for sure. As far as influential, as far as getting it and, and being important. Yeah, just kind of what he does, you know. I was a, I was a paid uh, attendee to this uh, the Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder thing. They did at the, on the Rolling Thunder Review Tour in 1975. They came down uh, to Florida, right, and they were staying at the Bellevue Biltmore for a few days. And I got a, I was hired to go and be an audience member for the taping of this uh, Burt Sugarman Midnight Special thing, and we, we sat there for six hours. While Bob Dylan huddled around and tried to play songs for, with with this group of guys, and it, was, it was terrible. It was all, they had a custom PA. They hired a sound company from Chicago who drove down with a little trailer and a custom PA. <laughs> it was like it was it was stupid. It was, I never even collected my check. You know, I, was, I got paid for that. But well, you're a terrible audience member. So. I remember uh, my friend Charlie Decker was knew the the inner people, and he got the job of, of going to Breck Music. And getting the Bob Dylan Blue Songbook for Bob, so he'd have his. <laughs> oh wow! And that's what they would do. They would all huddle around, and they would have the songbook on stage, and he would open the songbook and just start flipping pages, and they'd stop it. Then they <laughs> songbook twenty really? minutes huddling around, and then they'd go play. It was terrible. <laughs> but this guy, this guy comes out, this long, lanky, you know, guy. I thought he was Roger McGoon because Roger was there too. And he was sort of at the same gait and look, you know, kind of long and lanky. But he sits down at the piano and he plays the song, and it just blew me away. And that was T-Bone Burnett. He mm. was, at that time, he, they were forming a band from the guys on that tour called the Alpha Band. That was actually a big influence. On, I mean, on a lot of my, I'd say my songwriting, that kind of topical, socio-political, religio songwriting, you know, that I do is T-Bone Burnett. Is that from that... Early, you know, especially if you ever listen to the early Alpha Band albums, Statue Makers of Hollywood and East, you know, East of East of Eden was ones and have Adrenaline. You a, have you had a chance to listen to his new? No, I haven't. Th- I oh. haven't. I, I saw the, all the ads for it and his little his little sitting at the desk. It's ad. It's pretty heavy duty. Oh, it's electronic, yeah. right? Yeah, and the lyrics are just amazing. Oh yeah, I bet. Yeah. I, I want to hear it. Yeah, I just yeah. there's so much to hear. There's so much to do. And that's one thing too that's has come up and is is. You know, anybody that's worked with you knows this too, but you consume content, you consume, uh, whether it's music, whether it's theory, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, mastering tips, like you're just constantly consuming stuff that you're putting into practice or into use either in a session. I'd say another thing too, is because you're really absorbent and I imagine this probably impacts your songwriting, you're seeing a bunch of musicians in the studio from all walks that even maybe somebody that maybe somebody objectively would think that's not great. You're probably still taking away something that like, Oh, I never oh, thought t- about that. Totally. Yeah. No, I mean, you learn something from everybody. You know, it's just, there was this guy I recorded back at the old, the old Zen in 1999. This, this guy was like a, like a, I shouldn't say if he listens to it, it was like, like a, just like a, you know, one of those drunken street dude guys who could barely, I thought could barely play, you know, just like a street corner musician. I won't do an album, you know, and, but, you know, this guy, then he starts playing. I think he's a complete yo-ho, you know, and, but he starts playing. And I go, the songs have something in there, you know, and then he got me, he wanted me to play guitar on it. So I played guitar, you know, on a bunch of it. We recorded it. He, I never thought of him again. 
He's been contacting me on Facebook. He's got a career. He's out in California. He's made five albums. <laughs> you know what I mean? his, name is, his name is Danny Sandock. He's a super nice guy and just been real, you know, positive. And it's because I, you know, and I, I and he played this for me now. I go, yes, yeah, because I pl- I played guitar on it and it sort of became something. And you know, it's like, but so you know, you're always surprised. It's not. What, Actually, I mean, it's funny, but I, I call myself like the Statue of Liberty of recording. It's like, send me you're tired, you're hopeless, you're clueless. Because <laughs> a lot of what I do is sort of, you know, like that, working with people who are really green. And, and But the creative, you know, everybody has a creative essence. Exactly. And, and I, I love, and, and I love, I love, I like that most. I like actually, you know what I mean? When something is, it's harder to do really good stuff sometimes, or, or, or especially like a mix. Say you get a bunch of tracks and the song is expertly played, recorded. It's like, what do I do with this? It always sounds, you know, it always sounds done. Like, I can only mess it up, maybe, you know? It's, a, it's, a, it's probably heard, true in some and, cases. And I've heard a lot of other engineers say, or mixers say this, you know, it's, it's harder to mix something that's really good, almost. It's something that's, that, you know, sucks. It's, it's like, you're only going to make it better, mm-hmm. probably, so... You know, that's that's a challenge, and it's, you know, I've gotten pretty good at doing that. That's that's my specialty. I, I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and let me say, I'm sorry. <laughs> and thank you. Oh, man, that's funny. It's because I'm still, you know, as much as I've done, as much as you'd say I'm a pro, I'm still an inspired amateur. My, my head's, you know what I mean? In my spirit, I'm inspired. It's like I don't consider myself as being accomplished or really knowing what I'm doing, per se. I just Well, and you're still curious, and you're still excited still, I'm by I'm curious the and excited, and I love doing it, and, and yeah, and I want to. I want to do it. I want to do it. So, Steve, one of the things we always ask people, do you have a favorite gig that stands out to you that you just, you look back on, you're like, that was special? Maybe it was the venue, maybe it was the people you're playing with. Well, there's, you know, there's been a few, I guess, but there's one I think of that's funny. It's just like uh, from, uh, it was like when we were back in the headlights days, Probably early '80s, and we played this place called the ACL Club. I don't know what it was, but that night I was in a real like calm mood. Before the show, I just sat like outside behind the stage in the parking lot, and I meditated. And I just I thought I started thinking about <laughs> I, like going into my atomic structure, into my into my DNA, going inside as far as I can go. I just started thinking this stuff. I don't know why. I don't even know what I was thinking. I was just thinking about atomic, atomic, and and creation and things happen at the moment of creation. And just we went on stage and we played, and the place went crazy. It was like thunderous applause all night long, every song. I mean, it was, it was weird because I, I'm just I'm thinking about subatomic structure going in, and somehow that put me in a place that. I don't know if that's what did it, or if it's just a fluke or coincidence, you know. But it was it was one of those nights where we could do no wrong. It was like we were just played, and it, and it was good. I mean, we were on, but the audience was like moron. It was like, you know what I mean? It was, and and that was one night. And you know, there'd be people there every night, and it was good. It was like, but this was like, whoa, what happened? You know, what was that? Was it because I was thinking about subatomic structures before I went on stage? <laughs> I was connected to some deeper part of the matrix. Steve, you want to you play us some stuff? Not really. 
Well, it's it's kind of a requirement. Let's yeah. play a couple. No. People uh, people listen. You know, I do I do I do want to play. Uh, I want to play and sing and but I'm I think I'm really you know suck at doing, <laughs> at doing this. When I I'm, just saw you recently at the Hideaway, and I can tell you that you don't suck. If anything, you are just getting. Well, when I'm doing better. that, if I go up and play lead guitar, shit, that's easy, man. That's that's like that's uh-huh. you know, saying that's one of those things that. I will never be like go in front of forty thousand people and play, and it's, it's not even, you know, it's because that's something I know exactly. It's one of the only things in this world that I know exactly what to do or think I do, but I do it. So it's not. This is so elusive to me. It's like, you know, I'll be changing my. I'll be thinking as we're going through a song. I'll I'll go into six different voices. You know, I don't know what I, I don't know what I want to be. It's, a, it's schizophrenic as heck. What are you gonna play for us? Yeah, I write two kinds of two kinds of songs. Okay, quaint and apocalyptic. <laughs> that is true. Yep, I I would say that's accurate. Which uh, which type of song is this? Quaint or apocalyptic? Quaint. Okay. Chicken wings for you. They're pretty hot ones 
things out there there's urban pop you know and there's there's other musical styles and stuff but to me this is you know good because that's all I know and it's my world but there's something you know and I, I can just see it from when young kids discover this thing that you know what I'm saying that's mm-hmm. it's more just something about it that's more real I'm talking about like musically like rock and roll like Americana or whatever playing for not not pushing buttons and, and making beats and that's all creative it's all great but there's something about you know the, the organic thing of sine waves coming out of a wooden instrument you know that's that form of communication that form of communication is it, it, it's more raw and visceral it, it it to me it conveys the emotion better like every solo i take it's just a it's just a it's a plea it's a you know what i mean it's a I'm here, help me. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's putting that expression. It's just pure expression, putting it out there for, you know, because you have to do it because it's in you and it comes out. You know, it's just, I think that's what, you know, people think I'm a great guitar player and I don't, I know I'm not that great, but I play interesting. You know, I play fun. And it's, it's, a, it's magic to me when I'm doing it. So hopefully that trans, that's, I think that's what translates is like, I don't know if other guitar players don't, you know, feel that or they're too removed from the moment or something when they're playing or trying to execute and not actually be it, you know. That's. But it comes through. I mean, I, I'll say to you, know, my dad. I'm always amazed at people, you know, because it's like, you know, what's lead guitar playing? It's like there's a lot of guys who do it more than ever. I mean, anybody has a little brother, nine-year-old kids on YouTube playing miles around whatever I could do, you know? It's- but but it is. It's the staying power of music, but staying power of the songs. I say, you know, my dad, of all the things that he raised me on listening to and still loves, I mean, you know, gets excited about Drive Through Church. That first Drive Through Church record you guys did it's is really good. Is, is one of his absolute favorite albums. It really is. I mean, it, you know, it's one of mine now. I mean, I haven't heard it in, in 20 years almost, and it it, it blew me away. It just because it just was had so much energy. It's kind of, you know... 
I don't know why you know those you don't see those things at the time or whatever, but it's in retrospect it was greater than the sum of its parts. I thought. All right, here's it. I'm gonna do something kind of different. Do it. Okay. You can follow if you want. It's all Bible verses. It's all King James. Really? Yeah. The first verse is a little bit, you know, it kind of, it's still from a verse, but it's messed yeah. with. But all the other, second, third, fourth, are all stanzas. Most Daniel and... Uh, you did say you were a good Catholic boy. Yeah, let me, uh, let me... Uh, See, this is a, this is, to me, it's kind of interesting as a songwriting thing. Yeah. Because I wrote this originally as a song called The Last Days about divorce, right? And I wrote, a, I have a whole song recorded with secular lyrics, right? And then for some reason, it hit me like The Last Days. I, I did a religious, you know, the sacred version of it. And it's one of the things where you have two songs, the same song, but completely different intent because it's The Last Days. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, that is, it's that so many varying meanings depending on when and how you hear something, right? I yeah, mean, that's, so, you know, that can change. so if, if my songs are apocalyptic or quaint, it's like I'm trying to elevate the mundane into the divine. It's like, that's to me, it's like everything in life is, you know, it's pretty mundane. It's up to you to make it or, you know, to see, I basically to see what's there, to see that it's not just mundane. There's, in mundanity, there's, you know, there's glory. So, well, but that's you know that's kind of that the human condition, right? I mean, people for many years and many well, I guess centuries didn't have the luxury of getting to think about such existential things, right? You're worried about, like you said earlier, like clothing yourself, shelter, food, right? And then once you're surviving relatively on idle, then it's yeah, all of a sudden these other things start to creep in about like, yeah, what occupies your time and why are we here and what are we doing? And so much of yeah, just art exactly. in general is that quest for understanding that, right? And trying to identify what it is and make sense of it. It's, it's, all, it's all a quest to me. It's, it's just, you know, I, I find myself just, it's feeling kind of like, why am I doing any of this? You know, I'm always thinking that it just... Uh, never mind. I won't go there. Get into my psychological state at the moment. This is the spot for it. The meaning of life is there's no meaning. This is. It's kind of about creation. It's just, you have to sort of make it. It's not about the end of the journey. Like the journey. No, the end. It's is about never, the journey. Never, that's that's seen. That's that's kind of why I keep doing it because it's, you realize it's not. Once you get, once you once you have it and get it, it's so what you know. It's, right. What's the next thing? That's the next thing. So when that next, there's no more next things. I guess that's when you're really retired. Yeah. All right. I'll, you want to do this again? I'll Let's do, do it. it. Yeah. All right. Almost here, the invitation sent with a reception in the sky. Many are called, but few will stay. 
the others turned away. But no one has to wonder why. I see the darkness on the horizon, the shadows coming, a storm is rising. We run for cover, but we should stand in light. In the last days, today is almost past. Are these the last days? One day you will last. Shut up the words, seal the book Until the end times Until all things are fulfilled When many shall run to and fro And knowledge is increased A new Jerusalem to build The darkness coming, a storm is rising We run for cover, but we should stand in light These are the last days, today it's almost past In the last days, one day it will last And rumors of war And hearts fail from fear But still the end's not by and by Well first will come the dragon son That man of sin revealed Look up redemption, draw it nigh The dark is coming, the storm is rising We run for cover, but we should stand in light In the last days, today it's almost past Are these the last days? One day will last Days. Today is almost past In the last days one day will last
twinkling of an eye You won't have time to say goodbye that song oh yeah yeah i do too is it called the last days of course yeah okay. the last days yeah i recorded that one too that's going to be in the new album well yeah do you and have mark any... and brandon came in it did really good on that one it's because it was defined you know what i mean it's like mm -hmm. i knew the parts and what I, what I wanted so it worked so you've been writing a lot lately or what nope. like what's nope. going on the new record i can't write anymore <laughs> i someday i will you know i wrote one song i wrote a new song and that's the only thing I've written in years. It's getting hard for me to do my old songs, though. It's like they feel, even though they feel more valid to me, like now than they used to, even. But it's like I feel silly or something doing them almost. That's how I am. Like I, I just kind of shed. I think a lot of guys get that. Shed them as I go. Is it sort of like is is it because just of like life experience, kind of like things I probably wore. Four years ago, I'd probably be embarrassed if I wore them now. Probably, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that. It's that you know, I mean, the part that embarrasses is kind of weird. It's it's actually the probably the best part, the innocence, <laughs> the innocence of it. You know, the even when right, I like yeah, the the not knowing any better. Even when I listen though to like the drive through church stuff, I listen to a couple songs I hadn't listened to in a in a long time, my stuff, and I'm still singing that kind of. Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm well, on that yeah, yeah. At least the way my dad and I always talk about it, kind of at that time, you guys coming up and being, you know, the headlights and Mad for Electra going, and you sort of being like the petty to us, to Ed's, you know, Elvis Costello, you know, and you guys sort of having these two sides of this musical coin, and then, you know, then you guys are together on Drive Through Church. Um, which again, I don't know if we picked it up, so I do want to go back and say like that is one of my dad's favorite records, even to this day, with everything. You know, <laughs> that's so cool, and it was never actually officially released. Yeah, it's a full album actually. It's a full record there. Well, he has it, and he loves it. Good, because I don't, I don't have it. So, <laughs> well, yeah, we should ask him for it. Capture in a moment. It's energy to it. Yeah, it's there's a they're electric. There's something, and I remember that time. It felt I felt you know what I mean I, maybe that's what I'm hearing. Is what I was feeling at then. I'm remembering that because it, that time felt electric. Like this is cool. This is like yeah, we're onto something here, kind uh -huh. of thing. You know. Well, and I was going to say too the fact that it's so much music so readily available, and the fact that it is still, whether it's topically or audibly or sonically relevant. That you know, you, I don't know if we picked this up already, but like you guys got a write up recently in Creative Loafing, which is one of my favorite entertainment magazines that we have here in the Bay Area, and you know they're regional and stuff too, and they. You guys just got a cool write-up in there about drive-through church. Well, I don't want to say you're still good because that's you know like it. You guys are just as relevant as any, which is why so much of us enjoy playing with you guys. Um, so, I, but I think that that is definitely important to to note that it's not like oh we can still play like you're as good as ever, if not at your best in a lot of ways. You in know? a lot of ways, yeah. A lot of ways, maybe not. But 
<laughs> well, it's funny you say that. By contrast, when it, because of the drive-through church stuff was recorded in 1990 something. Yeah, mid 90s, like 94. And it's been on the shelf, and and not that long ago, Bill Mason from Hitmakers, where we recorded that, sent me the mixes digitally, and I. So after all these years, we listened to it, and some of it you do have that reaction like, oh man, back then, like there's some of the things I was doing that I don't do anymore that like, you almost impress yourself. Yeah, yeah. You it's know. A, yeah, it's, you've forgotten more than you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think as you, the longer you play, you, 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 coalesce, it coalesces, you, you kind of filter into, into a place, you know, where right. it's not yeah. going to change much from there, kind of where you sort of, you know, have it, together in that place and you don't venture much from it really is that a comfort or is it more of just a yeah, developed to me, signature to me, to me it's a comfort it's a comfort and a developed signature you know, but it is it's i kind of like i like in many ways i like being old it's it feels i feel more empowered or something i'm more you feel kind of liberated liberated it's like yeah. you know you, you don't, i don't have to worry about looking good anymore as much you know <laughs> but i think there's a like there's a contentment with it you know for me <laughs> relative right but i mean like i was talking about this with somebody the other day like you know i i had a good time in high school but i wouldn't go back like i'm happier now or i guess more content oh, yeah, now yeah. and i imagine hope, hopefully you know knock on wood that that'll continue to be the case but it's i guess it's you know not to sound like a psa but like the more you know you know you pick up yeah it is you pick up life experience you sort of have that well to draw from, and a lot of the bullshit has fallen away. You, you're able to focus on more on what's important, you know. Yeah, a lot of the bullshit falls away. That's good. That's. It's like when I when I'm doing guitar solos in the studio. Uh, you know, if I really care about the thing and want to make it special, you know, I'll end up doing 37 takes or something, and it, it's like. By the end of that cycle, at those take thirty-seven, it's like you've made every mistake you can make at that point, you know, or went all down all the dead ends you can almost go down mm-hmm. at that point, and you end up. It's like what it happens with me is I end up like writing a part, you know. I don't like to write parts, but if you if it comes about from you trying thirty-seven times to do a sixteen-bar guitar solo, then it's like that's well written because it's it wrote itself, that's, but it, it, it took that. You know, going through that over and over, and then you know, and it always it always get it starts out pretty good, gets worse, gets worse, gets really worse. You know, you're ready to say I should give this up. You know, and then all of a sudden something happens and it it, it breaks through. You know? That sounds exactly Take, like my my guitar overdubs for my stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> exactly. it's, it's guitar too. I mean, I guess you can do that with other things, but sometimes it, it's more with guitar. It's such a touchy goddamn thing, you know. What I mean, things are touchy. It's just that you touch. They're just they're buzzing. They're 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 booming. They're they're whining. They're yeah. They're just they're noisy. They're so attitude. temperamental. Yeah, I don't really like them that no much. No wonder I hate guitars. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was. I really wish I was a. I wish I could play. You know, piano. I wish I was a good keyboard player. Uh, me too. I wish I was a good guitar player. <laughs> But you're right, like guitars are so sensitive and they do all have a different personality and Oh yeah, totally. They're they're yeah, they're bitches. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure that's true of any instrument for the person that's they give you a hard time, they'll 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 
kind of go wacky when you least expect it or, or need, need it to be. You know, just, well, there's a war on mood, you know, there's a, there's a, a war on sine waves. It, we're being led into a, a frequency toxic universe and nice, pretty, congruent waveforms are, are out. It's electronic music, square waves. It's, what what, <laughs> what wave? What waves are guitars? What shape waves are guitars? Sine waves. Sine, uh, sine waves. Any natural, a natural curvy. sounding curvy. thing is curvy. It's curvy and and it has it's it's not it's more complex. There's a there's a mystery about it in a way. It's it's not as cut and dried as it. And squ- square waves are. <laughs> That's why they busted Gibson. Is it worn wood? Is it worn wood? Get your synthesizers, man. Get your get your artifon. Re- reson- resonation is evil. Instrument one and. and Create virtually. It's a, I mean, that's you know, it, obviously that's where it's. I don't know if guitars will ever, you know, go away. You think you think they could think they could possibly go away? It's, I hope not. I don't know. I mean, I think that people aren't buying them anymore as much, but everyone's got one, you know. So by now, everybody has. Everyone has. There's a guitar in every house somewhere, right? Every household. You guys want to do a drive-through church one? Would that be relevant? Sonically relevant? Like a thousand cannonballs It came from out of nowhere It just materialized Caught me totally unaware Hit me right between the eyes She don't believe in things that Only you can see To them at all You tried to walk that line But she walked away She won't stumble She won't fall Deep in the heart of Texas or in some foreign land Deep in the heart of nowhere There's a mixed up lonely man Right now it feels like forever But it's only been one day Of every tie you severed This has been your best mistake She don't in things that only you can see She don't relate to them at all She tried to walk that line but she walked away She won't stumble She won't fall She won't fall
Well, Steve, hey, let me say thanks for doing this with us. Oh, my pleasure. And thank just you. getting started, man. We're, we're quitting already. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to keep going, but I just want to make sure I get this. Uh, thanks for doing it. We're excited to hear more of what you guys do. If you guys haven't, please go down the rabbit hole of drive Through Church and everything else in Steve's catalog, and we'll instruct you on that accordingly. Um, we love you, man. Thanks for doing it. And on behalf of all the artists that aren't here to tell you, thank you for all you've done for the rest of us. From a recording standpoint. My pleasure. To song divers. Thank you for supporting us and our sponsors and all the great independent music makers out there trying to make their way in the music business these days. It just keeps getting bigger, obscuring the way all in today. Songs we heard in this episode are Crowded in Here and Inside Today both from the album Every Monster by Steve Connolly and the Lesser Gods. We also heard a live, unreleased recording of the headlights doing Happy Idiot with yours truly sitting in. And we also heard She Won't Fall and The Last Days. You can hear Steve's prolific body of work on countless records from the last several decades. From his own work with the headlights to so many albums from all over the country, Steve's Critical Mass sits with musicians here near his home in the Tampa Bay area. Steve's produced records for past Songdivers guests like Joshua Riley, Rebecca Pulley, Dean Johannesson, Danny and Alex, Ronnie Elliott, and that list includes my own work with Mercy McCoy and Ed's albums with The Ditch Flowers and Drive Through Church and so many more future guests to come. To join the roster or to hear about the latest musical conspiracy theory Steve is investigating, Book some time with him at Zen Recording Studios here in St. Pete by visiting zenrecording.com. You can also find Steve Connolly's solo record, Every Monster, on iTunes. Connolly is spelled C-O-N-N-E-L-L-Y. And Steve, from all of us, thanks for everything. Can I pee? Yeah. Yeah. You should get off the couch first, though. I might not make it. Song Divers is a production of Ybor City Records and recorded in the historic Kenwood district of St. Petersburg, Florida.